Well, good morning. Now, I'm excited um, to look at the psalm we're going to be observing today. So if you have your Bible, take it and turn to Psalm 145. I feel like this is a fitting psalm for the occasion we know as Father's Day, because in this psalm, we're going to look at one of the greatest responsibilities and greatest privileges of every dad and truly of every mother and every single true follower of God. Now, one of the realities that we see just constantly throughout the scripture is that your life and my life are a vapor. It says in Ecclesiastes, it uses the word uh, habel, which is like a little mist. When I was a kid in Chicago, we used to go out and it would be freezing cold and we would go in the cold air. And as soon as we breathed that breath, it was gone. And this is the word the Bible uses to describe your life and my life. It's transitory. It's fleeting. It's unpredictable. It's fragile. And before you know it, you will be gone. And there may be in your mind an understanding of the fragility of life. And there's this desire to leave a legacy. And today we're going to look at the only legacy that matters And that's what Psalm 145 is going to teach us. This is the last Psalm of David and the last acrostic Psalm in the Bible where each verse begins with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Out of the 150 Psalms, 75 of them are ascribed to the shepherd king, David. And through the Psalms, David becomes the worship leader of the Bible. He is a man who desires to honor God and give him the glory. Now, in Psalm 145, there is this prescript that says, a psalm of praise. You may think that every psalm is a psalm of praise, but this is the one time in all of the Psalter that we see this description, a psalm of praise. This is David's last psalm. It's his magnum opus. It's his swan song. And he is going to offer to God a psalm of praise. Why? Because God is so great. That's the theme of this psalm. And there's a couple different ways that you could divide the text as we look at it this morning. The first could be that you could look at the beginning of the psalm or the first half of the psalm as David's call to praise, and the second half as the grounds that he gives for why you should praise God. But today we're going to break down the psalm by observing five responses that man should have to the greatness of God. Five responses to the greatness of God. The first is humility, and I want to look at that in verse 1. But before we jump in, this psalm is theologically rich, and because of that, it is doxologically rich. Theology fuels doxology. Great truth about God deserves great worship. I like what Danny just prayed. He said, tune my heart, sing your praise. That's what we just sung. You're, you're not ready in of your own self to even hear the word of God this morning understand that? Even when we pray, open our eyes, God, that we may behold the wonderful things within your word. When we just sing, tune my heart to sing your praise, our hearts need to be tuned before we behold God's greatness in his word. Praise is never mindless. Neither is the teaching of God's word and neither is the hearing of God's word. It must be something where we engage with our minds. So there's five responses in this psalm to the greatness of God, the first being humility. Let me look at verse one with you. David says, I will extol you my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Where do we see humility in this verse? Well, David says, I will extol you. 
to extol God means to lift high the name of God. It is to elevate and to make supreme who God is. I want you to think with me. David is the most powerful king on earth. It is sung of David. Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. The halls of history sing about David as a mighty warrior, a great artist, a great poet. And yet David, this powerful king, understands something fundamental right from the beginning. I am king because I have been anointed. God is king because he is the creator. And I must come and subject myself before the true king of all things. This is where praise begins. You cannot begin to praise God from a position of elevation. You must be brought low. You cannot lead your family as a man in the ways of God unless you begin with this proper footing, that being humility. David says in 1b, look with me, I will bless your name forever and ever. To bless is the Hebrew word barak. It means to praise, it means to adore, but it means something else. We see the same word in Psalm 95, 6. It says, come let us worship and bow down, and it says, let us, anybody know the next word? Kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. To bless God is to kneel down before him. Why? Because you cannot worship God, you cannot praise God if you are high and exalted. He is the only one who is lofty and exalted. When Isaiah sees God and he's on his throne, it says he is high, lofty, exalted. God is not at your level. And to anyone who thinks he's at God's level, you cannot worship God. Praise begins with a humble heart. And a humble heart is the soil where thanksgiving and praise blooms. Andrew Murray in his little book, Humility, says this. Here is the path to the lower life, down, lower down. Just as water always seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment God finds men low and empty, his glory and power flow in to exalt and bless them. But not only do we see the response of humility to the greatness of God, I want to look secondly with you at the response of resolve commitment, determination to honor God because he is so great. I want to look at verses one through three with you again. David says, I will extol you, my God, O king. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, highly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Later on in this passage, David is going to draw other people to worship God with him. But David understands that corporate commitment to God begins with this individual resolve. This resolve is the logical response to a God who is so, so great. How great is God? Verse three tells us. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. I've been deep sea fishing a couple times. I'm not much of a fisher, but I like being on a boat and I like the water and... It's cool, and the tuna tastes great. So I go out there, and they have these little monitors that tell you how deep the water is where you're currently driving. And I say, is that, what does that say? Well, that's, it says it's 100 fathoms deep here, Johnny. How deep is a fathom? Well, a fathom is roughly 1.8 meters or six feet. It comes from a man's outstretched, outstretched wingspan. So a fathom is six feet. 100 fathoms is 600 feet deep. And you go, wow, it's really 600 feet deep right here? Yeah, 
It's a massive number, massive depth, but nonetheless, a fathomable number. You need to know something about God. His greatness is unsearchable. It's unfathomable. You cannot measure the greatness of God. The further you go out into this ocean, the more you realize you are only at its shore. The higher you ascend the mountain and regarding the greatness of God, the more you realize you are but at the foothills of God's greatness. The people that spend their life understanding and pursuing God's greatness begin to realize, I am nothing. I know nothing. You will never, ever, ever plumb the depths of God's greatness. You will never master this subject. God might master you but you will never come to the end of this lofty pursuit. And David says, I am determined, I am resolved because of God's greatness to praise him, to honor him, to glorify him with my life. In the fall of 1722, Jonathan Edwards, when he was but a teenager, began to pen his resolutions. He was 18 years old when he began. And these 70 resolutions that Jonathan Edwards penned were really the framework for his entire life. Let me just highlight a few of Edward's resolutions. Number four, resolved never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, but what tends to the glory of God. Number 17, resolved that I will live so I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Number 25, resolved to examine carefully and constantly that one thing in me which causes me in the least to doubt the love of God and to, to direct all of my forces against it. Number 53, resolved to cast and venture my soul on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust and confide in him and to consecrate myself wholly to him. July 8th, 1723. He's writing this as a teenager. George Marston, in his biography of Edwards, says this, Jonathan Edwards directed his resolutions toward plugging every gap that would allow distraction from what he saw as the only worthy activity, to glorify God. Understand this. No one lives a godly life on accident. No one. There's some people that have freak athleticism, and you go, oh man, if you only applied yourself, you'd be amazing. But there's no one like that in regards to godliness. There's no one who just has a competitive advantage against you. Godliness must be pursued. Honoring God is a commitment. It's a resolve, a determination where you go, I will. David says in the first two verses four times, I will, I will, I will, I will. If no one else follows God on planet earth, I will. That's a unique man. That's a man like Daniel. Everyone else bows down, I will not. But before Edwards ever penned his first resolution, he offered a preparatory word. He said this, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. This preface undergirds everything that follows in his 70 resolutions. Resolutions apart from God's power are vain, but resolutions accompanied by grace, enabled by God's power, and through much prayer avails much. It's not an antonym of reliance for you to be on God, for you to be resolved to honor him. Verse two, David says, every single day I will bless God. If you want to be a man of God, if you want to be a woman of God, it's not something that you can relegate to once a week activity. It's an everyday, all day reality. 
You may retire from your career, but you will never retire from this lofty pursuit. David is a man after God's own heart because as a teenager, he made a commitment to honor God. And it says, I will bless your name forever and ever. How long is forever? Well, it never ends. How long is forever and ever? It's even further beyond that. David says, this is the greatest commitment in my life. And it is to kneel, bow down, bless, praise, and worship a great, great God. So the first response to the greatness of God is humility. The second is resolve. And the third that I want to focus on here is a passion to influence the next generation in verses four through nine. I want to read this for us. David says, one generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all of his works. Those who revel in the greatness of God are passionate about influencing the next generation so that they may too also know, love, and follow God, and in turn, pass on the greatness of God to their following generation. On Tuesday, I called my grandma, Grandma Joan. Grandma Joan is 87 years old, and I wanted to get a little bit more understanding about our family history. So she says, well, Johnny, my real name is Myrna, which was a surprise. Myrna Joan Dunlap. I married Christy Artavanis. I said, I know that. That was my grandpa. Tell me about his ancestry. Well, his dad was Athanasius. I had heard the name. I know the name. Athanasius, my great-grandpa, was... Uh, a stowaway from Greece. He, Athanasius Artavanus came from Greece in the early 1900s, around the Depression era. He started a bakery in Baltimore, and then he moved to Santa Monica Pier and started a restaurant called The Spaghetti House, a Greek-owned Italian restaurant. <laughs> I never met Athanasius. I then asked Katie's parents the other day to give me a little bit more family history, and Katie's great-grandma was Winifred Klosterman, she was born in 1894, and in 1942, she wrote an article for the Reader's Digest entitled, 15 Babies Are Not Enough. And the article, she reflects on 30 years of marriage and 15 babies that were born and raised during the Great Depression. There's a few sentences I love in this Reader's Digest article. She says this, we pulled through those depression years better than most families, not in spite of our children, but because of them. One insurmountable problem was always the bathroom. With one bathroom and 17 claustermans, we had to be on a precise schedule. She says this, many a time I got supper ready for the family, did the dishes, put the children to bed, and had a new baby the next morning. Twice when the roads were deep with mud or snow, the babies arrived before the doctor. Her last sentence of the article reads this, when I try to think of the things I have done for my children, I find myself thinking only of what they have done for me. I wish I had a dozen more like them. Well, anyway, at least one more. Why the family history, Johnny? Well, let me tell you. Other than the fact that my great-grandpa, Athanasius, started a restaurant in Santa Monica and was a Greek man, and other than the Reader's Digest article I have about Katie's great-grandma, I know nothing else about them. You understand Stonebridge Bible Church. You know about as much about my great-grandparents as I do. 
This is a sobering reality that the Bible wants to scream in your face. Go take a walk at a cemetery because cemeteries preach the strongest sermons. You are going to die and you will be forgotten. That's the anthem of Scripture. It's the reality that the Bible doesn't want you to live in some delusion you're going to live on and on. Only God lives on and on. You're going to die. And you may think, oh, I want to pass on a legacy. I want my life to matter. The Bible says, listen, there is only one thing that matters. There's only one thing. And it's in verse 4. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. It doesn't say one generation shall tell your works to another. It says one generation shall, say it with me, praise. The ESV says to commend. The RSV says to laud your works to another. You understand that your responsibility as parents, your responsibility as grandparents, is not just to pass the torch of truth. It is to commend the works of God down to the next generation. To praise the works of God is to worship God, as you teach the truth, it sounds so basic, but you need to ask this question. Have your children ever seen you worship God? Truly, have your children ever watched you worship and gone, mommy and daddy know a living God? There's a guy I love, Joel Beakey. He, uh, I was having lunch with him a number of months ago. He's a pastor, and he always talks about his dad as he preaches and as he talks. He's in his 70s now. And um, I remember I said, tell me about your family. And he just says, oh, I, I remember Johnny as a boy. Um, I remember being a young boy, and I realized I, I never, ever had to doubt the existence of God because I always watched my dad pray, and I knew he was talking to someone real. And that, that always has struck me. To pass down the truth is not just to train your children. They must see you exult in the truth. To exult means to triumph, to have jubilee, joy, where they see you thrilled by the truth you have come to believe in. They must watch you worship God. Piper says this, teachers and parents who do not exult over God in their teaching will not bring about exaltation in God. Dry, unemotional, indifferent teaching about God, whether at home or at church, is a half-truth at best. It says one thing about God and portrays another thing. It is inconsistent. It says God is great, but teaches as if God is not great. Christianity is grounded in right thinking, but it is more than that. It includes right feeling. Therefore, educating your children in the truth is not enough. Education is the means to the end, and the end is exaltation in who God is. Your goal for your children is not just a head full of facts. It's a heart full of fire for God. This must be modeled and is often caught more than it is taught, meaning that the next generation will never be that which they don't first see Side note in this regard, fathers, mothers, grandparents, it is not primarily the responsibility of the church to pass on the truth to the next generation. It is primarily yours. Parents partner with the church 
but you cannot delegate the responsibility of commending the works of God down to your children to someone else. This is the responsibility of the family, and it must be led by the father. Obviously, in cases where there is no father or no spiritual father, the the church comes alongside the family in this regard. But you need to understand this. Your children, your students, 58,000 college students within 20 minutes of this area, do you have a heart for them? They were made to worship. Being made in the image of God means that you have something hardwired within your DNA, and it is a longing to worship. You were made with an intrinsic desire to bow down. And when someone stops worshiping God, they don't become a non-worshipper. They become a worshiper of idols. They bow and serve their treasures. When a person doesn't worship God, they continue to do what they were made to do. Unfortunately, many parents within church culture today are more committed to polishing the idols within their children's hearts than they are elevating the supreme value of knowing a great God. I love sports. I played sports, and my dad helped me play sports. But I want you to just consider this. There is often more involvement between a father and a son and a father teaching his son to keep the eye on the ball, more so than keeping his eyes on Jesus Christ. Until your children are persuaded, until you're persuaded, I must have God or I am missing something, they will never love God and never know God. Modern evangelicalism says that to be a Christian is to pray a prayer. But that is not what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who has tasted that God is the supreme, great one in all of reality and can say to their sons and daughters, Psalm 1611, you make known to me the way of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The picture of God many people present to their children and their students is too small to dispel the curiosity that they will have towards the world, towards temptation, and towards sensuality. It's too small. There's nothing, there's very little for a child to go, man, Look, with the, look at the way my mom and dad worship. Look who they know. If I don't have that, I'm missing out. Each generation is to not just pass down the truth. It's not just a divergence from sin. It's to commend the works of God down to the passing generations. I, I want to look at just Deuteronomy 6 for a second. Let me just read it to you. Hear Israel, you know this, the Lord our The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Watch this. He's about to instruct them in regards to how they are to parent, but before he ever gets there, he says, they shall be on your heart. You can't instruct what you first don't possess. If you're a parent, you can never expect from your children what you don't model before them. It shall be on your heart. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, And then he says, then you shall repeat them diligently to your sons and speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk in the road, when you lie down and when you get up. The next generation, if they're to love God, then it's not something that they can hear about God before a meal or once a week on Sundays. It must be an everyday, all day reality. God says when you wake up, when you lie down, when you're on the way, when you're in the house, when you're on the couch, whatever you're doing, teach them diligently to your sons. God rules over creation, and he must reign in your mind. 
and he must reign in your calendar. What are we talking about today? Our great God, son. I want you to see this with your own eyes. So take your Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter three for a minute. The people of God are about to enter the promised land, but before they do so, they must cross the Jordan. So we come to Joshua chapter three. Moses has just died. God is elevating Joshua to a position of influence and leadership, and he's going to really show the people just how great and powerful he is. It was 40 years previous that God had led them out of Egypt, and he's going to give them another reminder of exactly who's in charge. It says this in Joshua chapter 3, verse 7. Now the Lord said to Joshua, this day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall, moreover, command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, when you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, by this you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess from you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, and the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Some names for your future kids. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then, take for yourself 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off, and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand in one heap. This is exactly what's about to happen. Verse 16, jump down. The waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap, a wall of water. It says, a great distance away at Adam, the city that was flowing. Now, here's the Jordan River is a, a big river, and God says, here's what I'm going to do. Instead of having to cross the entire Jordan, I'm going to have the priest walk through with the Ark of the Covenant. That entire river is going to rise up in one big heap. It's a wall of water. Remember when I delivered you out of Egypt, God says, and you guys crossed the sea? Well, I'm going to do the same thing here, and all two plus million people of the people of God are going to cross through on dry land, and you're going to know. I don't just reign over Egypt. I reign over all of creation. Now, I want you to look down at chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when all of the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourself 12 men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them, saying, Take up for yourself 12 stones from here, out of the middle of the Jordan, from that place where the priest's feet are standing firm, and carry them over with you, and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the 12 men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, cross again in the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. And each of you take up a stone on your shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask you later, saying, what did these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Look at verse 23. And he's just going to say the same thing. Verse 22, actually. Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord had done to the Red Sea, which he had dried up before us until we had crossed. Here's what God is doing. He's saying, I, I want you to remember this. So you're going to go into the Jordan. You're going to take 12 massive boulders. You're going to set them up. And that's going to be a monument. We just sang in Come, or in Come Thou Fount, we say, here I raise my Ebenezer. Anybody know what an Ebenezer is? It's not a goblet. An Ebenezer is a massive monument 
that the people of God would establish so that every single time they crossed it, they go, hey, what is this, Dad? Oh, son, that's, that's a reminder. Let me tell you a story about our great, powerful, loving God. There was this one time, son, when your grandparents were trying to cross the Jordan. It's a wall of water, and yet God, he, he dried it all up. Son, every time you pass this, you pass it down. God is not just a distant God. He's not a distant deity. He's a God who comes and dwells amongst us. He's a good God. He delivers us. He loves his people, and he is a constant home for those who are nomads. He is our God, son. Every time you pass these rocks, you're to remember God is great. But watch this. Turn over one book to Judges chapter 2. And look with me at verse 6. Judges chapter 2. When Joshua 2.6 had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Tinnathares, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know Yahweh, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. My Bible has a heading for the next section. Does yours? Mine says this. Israel serves Baals. Verse 11, then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. This is a crazy passage. The main commandment in Deuteronomy and Joshua is that God instructs the people to remember what God has done. Remember what God has done. Remember what God has done. And it comes to the end of Joshua's life, and it's just there like a slap in the face. The people did not remember Yahweh. The next generation didn't love God. The people of God were so busy possessing the promised land that they forgot to pass on the greatness of God to the next generation. It says that they served God, but the irony here is that there's just an obvious billboard that they failed to appropriately fulfill their privilege and responsibility of passing and commending and praising the works of God down to the next generation. It says they served the Baals, verse 12 of Judges 2, and they forsook the Lord the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. Understand this. I already said it. You were made to worship. And your kids, they were made to worship. And if they're not worshiping Jesus Christ, they will worship something else. Ted Tripp uses the line, like he says, your kids were made to be dazzled. They were made to be dazzled. It's not just that they're to believe in a higher deity. They were made to go, that is awesome. God is awesome, or something else will be. Now, flip back to Psalm 145 with me. To commend the works of God to the next generation isn't a shy, quiet, or nonchalant conversation. It's a consistent conversation you have, and it should be one full of joy. Look at verse 5 of Psalm 145. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate you understand that to, to be raptured by the greatness of God, you can't just glance at it. You must behold and meditate upon the works of God in his word. 
Look at verse six. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts. In our world, I want to just think with you, what do men talk about? Well, men talk about finances. They talk about fitness. They talk about 401ks, the future economy. I, I wonder, you know, I, met, I told first service, I met Malcolm McDuffie in the bathroom first service. I said, hey, what's your name? I'm Malcolm. What's your name, sir? And I was like, whoa, this guy's legit. So he, he responded to me. And I just wonder, if you bring a random eight-year-old in here and you said, hey, buddy, what do men talk about? What do daddies talk about? I wonder what they would say. Well, I hope it's this. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts. The greatest men I know are self-deflecting, not self-promoting. If they talk about anybody's power or anybody's awesomeness, it's God's. And they grab everyone around them by their proverbial collar and they say, you need to understand that God is just as great to me in my life as he was when he led the Israelites through the Red Sea. We always talk with children about back then, back then. You know, that's even why stories as just this overall like idea that children just need to know the stories in the Bible. There's truth in that. They need to know God's word. But they need to know God is just as great in your life today as he was back then. He's, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now look at verse 7. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. This is still talking about the men. And, and this is, I feel like I've harped on this a few times now. If you were to ask a kid, imitate your dad singing, what would they do? Do you understand that a critical component of your responsibility in passing down the commendation of God's works in the next generation is through singing? Because in worship, we example to our children, God is worthy of praise. So when we're singing great truth, God is my living hope. That is, it doesn't say sing loudly. It says shout joyfully in verse 7. This is a war cry. There, there is nothing more important. I mean, I've said it before. Your children need to watch you worship, and you need to worship like God is real. Because if, if down the line they go, I don't understand the big thing about God. They need to have watched for years going, when they worship, when they sing praise, when they say, God is my living hope, they really sung in a way where they have no hope other than the hope that is found in Christ. Why joyful shouting? Why do men joyfully shout? It's inverse from our culture, right? We think women sing loudly, guys are kind of reserved. That's backwards. It's backwards. The loudest singers in every church should be the dads. Why? Verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. Amen. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all of his works. We're going to look at this reality in a few weeks, but God is a God of profound love, great and loving kindness. And because of this great love, and his great mercy, and that he's slow to anger, and that he forgives your sin. You know, maybe you just waltzed in here, and you thought you were coming to an industrial park today, and you came into a church. 
God is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And he's eager to forgive. And because of this, people that know their God, they shout joyfully. And they declare God's mighty acts to the next generation. Now, we've looked first at the humility that comes as a response to knowing God. Secondly, this resolve, this commitment, this determination, I will, I will, I will. This third, we looked at a passion to influence the next generation. And fourth here, I want to look at gratitude or a thankfulness that comes from acknowledging and understanding the greatness of God. Look at verse 10 with me. David says, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. The human instinct is thanklessness, not thankfulness. But all of God's works and all of God's people are to live lives of gratitude. The Bible recognizes ingratitude as the fundamental distinguisher of the unregenerate. Romans 1, it says, they neither knew God nor did they give what? Thanks. I mean, it's crazy that in a list of, in Romans 1, of, uh, of murderers, homosexuality, idolatry, they didn't give thanks. Second Timothy 3. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good. 15 descriptions right there. And in the midst of a list that includes brutal, haters of good, unloving, and malicious gossips, right in the middle is just ungrateful. People that don't know God may even feign the appearance of gratitude, but it's never directed towards the giver of all good things. So it's not true gratitude. Because all gratitude rebounds to gratitude towards God. If we surveyed the scripture, there is this constant description of the unsaved for being ungrateful. And on the contrary, there is this defining characteristic of those who have been saved is that they are, are thankful, regardless of the circumstance. Grateful people worship They praise God and proclaim who God is to others. Look with me at verse 11. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of your majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The glory of God's kingdom. Have you ever been thankful for the glory of God's kingdom? It says men shall pass this down, meaning men grab their sons and they ask them, how was history today, son? Did you go to class? Riddle me this, son. Where is the Assyrian Empire? In the dust, dad. Where is the Babylonian Empire? In the dust, dad. Where is the German Empire? In the dust, dad. Well, let me tell you about a kingdom. Let me tell you about the glory of the majesty of the kingdom of God. His kingdom, verse 13, it is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures throughout all generations. God is a great, great king. But what makes his greatness even more pronounced is what we see in verse 14. He's not only lofty and exalted. He comes down and he lifts us up. Verse 14. The Lord, that's Yahweh, sustains all who fall 
and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. God is a majestic, glorious, sovereign king. We're going to look at that next week. The sovereignty of God. He rules and he reigns. And R.C. Sproul used to say there is not a single maverick molecule. There's nothing outside of his dominion. But our God who controls kings, kingdoms, nations, individuals, is a God who comes and he is near to the crushed. He feeds us from his hand in verse 15. Verse 16, look at it, it says he satisfies us. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. He satisfies our hearts. Who is this God? Verse 17, he is a righteous God. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways and kind in all of his deeds. I think I said this two weeks ago, but that whenever you see the word all or every in the Bible, God doesn't speak hyperbolically. It's reality, meaning this. There has never been and will never be a single thing that God does that is not altogether righteous. A God who is love and not righteous is sentimentality. What, what, what's the point? A God who is righteous without love gives you much reason to dread. But God is, verse 9, or verse 8, gracious and merciful, great in loving kindness. In verse 17, He is righteous. Fifth and finally, in verses 18 through 21, there is a humility in response to God's greatness. There is a resolve. There is a passion to influence the next generation. There is gratitude. And then fifth and finally, there is a nearness. A nearness to God's presence and a nearness to God's word. In verse 18, David says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth. The Lord is near, but in this sense, he's not near to everyone. He's near to who? He's near to those who call upon him. But not just those who call upon him. He's near to those who call upon him in what? Truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. The only vehicle by which you can know God, love God, experience God, is the revelation that he has given to you in his word. And if you want to be struck by the greatness of God, if you want to behold his majestic kingdom and his dominion that rules forever and ever, then your life must be tethered to his word. You know, on Father's Day, it's it's worth asking. Dads, do your children know that you love this book? Do they see you in God's word? And do they hear you say how God's word is changing your life? Grandparents, have you modeled for your sons and for your grandsons and your grandchildren that God's word is still changing you? You don't hit cruise control in the Christian life. You have never arrived. Have you told your grandchildren each year 
gets sweeter. Oh, and this is not just a book. This book is living and active. Let me see your knife, son. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Look at verse 19. I love this verse as we begin to land the plane. It says, He, that's God, will fulfill the desire of those who fear Him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. This is a paradox in Scripture. Fear and fulfillment appear to be antonyms. But in the Bible, they are conjoined twins. You will never have fulfillment apart from the fear of God. And you will never fear God unless you devote your life to the Word of God. Because Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom is found in the Word of God. The fear of God is the key that unlocks the door to fulfillment. And your children need to see you Grab them and say, son, if you want to live life with a capital L, then fear the Lord. What does that mean, dad? Well, it's not servile fear in the sense where you're afraid before your torturers. It's the awe of God. Why would I be in awe of God? Well, you would have no reason to be in awe of God unless you know him in his word, son. That's why you see me in it every single day. I thought that's legalism, dad. No, son, this is how I know him because he's real to me and he can be real to you. Verse 20, the Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. You know, God is just, and he will never turn a blind eye towards sin, but he is abundant in loving kindness. He's a forgiving God, but he will destroy the wicked. Verse 21, David just says, my mouth will speak the praise of Yahweh, and all flesh will bless his holy name. For how long, David? Forever and what? Ever. Do you want to leave a legacy? You know, Jonathan Edwards, when he was a teenager, decided he wanted to be changed by God, used by God. If you're a dad, you want to leave a legacy? If you're a grandparent, do you want to leave a legacy? Psalm 145 gives to you the only legacy that matters. And it's not just committing your life to the truth. It's commending and lauding the truth of who God is, how he has changed you, and how he is preparing for you right now an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance because of the power of the resurrection. Can you say amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. God, we love you, and we're so thankful for the truth of God's word. We're thankful, Lord, that your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and I pray, Lord, that men here would speak of the glory of the majesty of the kingdom of God, whose dominion knows no bounds and whose reign will never end. Lord, we're thankful, even as Wayne was praying, Lord, that we have a God in heaven who is not just the king of the universe, but our Father. And so, Lord, we pray that even you, as our loving, compassionate, merciful Father, would change and transform the dads here so that they might model for their sons and grandsons and daughters, Lord, what it looks like to know the living God. 
We're so grateful you love us, Lord. And I pray, even if there's anybody in here that doesn't know you, that you would bring them to a saving relationship with you. For you are a great God, full of mercy, full of compassion, and who extends forgiveness to the wretched sinners we are. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, we'll see you next Sunday. Have a wonderful Father's Day, um, and we'll be back in the Psalms next week. See you guys.